0: and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, senior features and analysis writer.
1: And I'm Emily Burt, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about some of the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the UK's overseas aid and development budget. And as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package of good news. But first, uh, we've actually seen each other that was that was brilliant in, in person, person for the
0: first time not over the screen in more than a year somebody i speak to almost every day but haven't actually seen in person for a year um so that was fun
1: we we went to the pub we went to the pub we sat outside in the rain as is tradition yep. the only way you you should be going to the pub these days um and we had several pints we did and it was fantastic It was very,
0: very nice. Um, And also, Emily is now coming to you live from the third sector offices.
1: I am. And I've just had to move three times because it turns out there aren't that many places in this building, which are good for sound quality. So (laughs) apologies if I sound a little tinny or if the gentle hum of the air conditioning unit behind me is providing you with some sort of interesting ambient noise in this week's recording. Yes, I'm back in the office for the first time with some of the members of the team. Um, And it's very, very nice. It's nice to be back together again. So it feels like we're starting to creep back to some semblance of normality. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's talk about aid. So in June last year, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that from September, the Department for International Development would be merged with the Foreign Office in order to create the new Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. Johnson touted this merger as an opportunity for the UK to have a greater influence on the world stage, one that would empower the Foreign Secretary to make decisions on aid spending in line with the UK's priorities overseas.
0: At the time, aid charities criticised the decision as an act of political vandalism that puts politics above the needs of the poorest people, and many were concerned that it would be a forerunner to reducing the amount of government money spent on overseas aid. But Johnson said, no, this wasn't the case. Aid spending would remain at 0.7% of gross national income. And of course, maintaining aid spending was a Conservative manifesto commitment. So with that in mind, do you want to have a guess what has happened since September last year?
1: Ooh, is it that they've cut the aid budget?
0: That is the correct answer. Astonishingly, yes, government policy has changed, resulting in the thing they said wouldn't happen, happening. Right. Yep. So in November, Chancellor Rishi Sunak confirmed that the UK's overseas aid budget will be cut next year from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5%, slicing more than £4 billion off the annual spending. Uh, This follows a cut of £2.9 billion in the aid budget earlier in the year, which the Small International
1: Development Charities Network has warned would force dozens of aid charities to close within the year. So Danny Shreeskandaraja, who is the chief executive of Oxfam GB, described the move to cut spending from 0.7 to 0.5 as a false economy which diverts money for clean water and medicines to pay for bombs and bullets. Christian Aid's head of policy, Patrick Watt, took a similarly dim view, likening the cutting of aid spending during a global pandemic to closing fire stations during a heat wave. Within hours of the announcement, the Conservative Party peer Baroness Sugg, who is a minister at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, had resigned from the government. So I think all in all, you can say it did not go down very well.
0: No, it didn't. And I just want to take a moment to emphasise what a big deal the 0.7% target was. That target was first adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1970 as a goal for developed countries. And the UK didn't manage to meet that goal until 2013. So it took us 43 years Mm. and it was then officially enshrined in law in 2015 notably by the coalition government so a conservative prime minister it has been work to get here and actually for all the discussion we've had about being world beating or leading the way during the pandemic this was an area where we were actually among the select few who were achieving the target we were very much leading the way
1: So in a statement in January, a government spokesperson said that the seismic impact of the pandemic on the UK economy had forced them to take, quote, tough but necessary decisions, including temporarily reducing the overall amount we spend on aid. The statement continued, we are running a prioritisation exercise to sharpen our focus on the areas in which we can have the most impact around the world, from tackling climate change to building back better from coronavirus. Now, they have since suggested that when things improve, they will move the target back up to 0.7. But notably, they haven't said what the trigger is going to be to move it back. And of course, this target is a percentage. So if the economy contracts, as it has done as a result of the pandemic, the amount of money available goes down anyway. But the government has said that it currently believes the 0.7% is not an, a quote, again, appropriate allocation of resources at the moment. So how are these cuts falling in the aid sector?
0: Well, that's all a little bit murky, to be honest. Um, So back in January, the NGO umbrella body Bond, along with the aid transparency campaign, Publish What You Fund, and the data-driven anti-poverty organisation development initiatives, warned that many of these decisions are being made behind closed doors and without proper scrutiny or consultation. They said that little to no information has been made publicly available, despite multiple requests for details of where the aid cuts are landing and how decisions are being made. And they said the lack of transparency poses a serious threat to the world's poorest and most vulnerable people. At the time, the government said it was fully committed to transparency. But there seems to be a lot of confusion, with some aid organisations being told that programme decisions had been paused, only to them being told that they were unpaused before having to slow down again with no information on the delays or what was causing them. Others have been told to hand back funding they were unable to spend during COVID-19, rather than being allowed to extend or adapt the programme activity, which is traditionally the kind of common practice during a humanitarian crisis. You know, you've got the money, you need the money, spend it where you think is appropriate.
1: Right. So on the 21st of April, Dominic Raab published a written statement outlining the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office's official development assistance budget for the financial year 2021-2022. The statement didn't detail which areas of work had been cut. So it was up to the aid organisations to compare the figures with last year and work out just what had happened. So NGO Bond estimates there's been a 41% cut to humanitarian assistance, a 68% cut to conflict and open societies, and a 9% cut to health compared with pre-pandemic levels. There's also been a 25% cut to girls' education, despite the fact that the government has committed to this being a priority for their global strategy. On a programme level, we've seen a 95% cut in spending on polio eradication, an 80% cut to wash projects, which focus on clean water and sanitation, and cuts in conflict-affected areas such as Myanmar, Niger and Yemen. There were also huge cuts to the UN AIDS programme and to UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund, which deals with reproductive and maternal health care, with an 85% cut to sexual and reproductive health and rights programmes.
0: And these cuts were so stark that UNAIDS and UNFPA both tweeted statements expressing their disappointment, which is really unusual, as like UN organisations normally avoid commenting
1: directly on government decisions. Difficult not to comment on cuts of that size, though, isn't it?
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the Small Charities Challenge Fund, which was a UK government scheme which offered funding to smaller development organisations, was closed, which forced the closures of forty-two programmes to save £2.1 million. Um, So Jess Price, who's the director at Health Improvement Project Zanzibar, which had its programme closed, highlighted that this was saving less than the cost of a recent refurbishment to a certain Downing Street press room, mm. which obviously didn't go ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and earlier this month, Bond was told by the government that it would lose uh, 895000 of its own funding, which is half of the total income it receives from government.
1: That is staggering, isn't it? A really yeah. staggering, staggering cut. So what does that actually mean for sort of where we are now? It's still pretty confused, to be honest.
0: Um, Bond is running a survey to try and get to grips with the extent of the issue. Like we said before, the the organisations are having to work out for themselves what the the new figures mean. Um, I spoke to their fantastic comms and policy officer, Marion um at Bond this week. Um, And she was saying that at the moment, you know, they're hearing from charities who are saying, yeah, we would love to fill in your survey, but we can't because we still haven't heard how much funding we're going to get. And she was saying, you know, they would have expected that organisations would all have been told by the end of last week. But so far, some are still in limbo. Um, And she described it as a death by a thousand cuts approach. And the thing with the delay is, even if it turns out that a particular organisation hasn't had its programme funding cut, This uncertainty is still a massive issue for them. You know, do they hold off on starting work they planned? Do they keep going? Do they look for other donors? If they've invested in medicine or equipment for a programme, you know, and it's possible they won't get funded to deliver that programme, what do they do with the medicine?
1: So this puts aid organisations in a really difficult position, particularly at a time when the public's focus has been more on local UK-based needs. Is Bond optimistic about when that 0.7 target might be restored?
0: Uh, Not really. Um, it's yeah, Mm. again, it's very much up in the air because as we said, the government hasn't said what the conditions would need to be for that to happen. Um, so the center for global development published a really interesting blog last month, which tries to have a bit of a guess about when that might be. And they came up with three options all based on the projected size of the UK deficit. So option one, which they reckon is probably the most likely is 2023. Um, at this point, even with the extra 0.2% of gross national income, spent on, on aid, the deficit would be around 0.8% of GDP. So the last time as a country that we hit the 0.7% target, the deficit was 1.6%. So obviously, at that point, the deficit would be well below the last time we managed it. So we should be able to do it. Option two is that the government returns to the 0.7% target only when the budget deficit has been eliminated, which could potentially be achieved by 2025-2026, according to some estimates. But having no deficit at all is actually historically very, very rare. And the um, CG dev says that this would be a high bar to ask of any public expenditure and would effectively be tantamount to a permanent reduction. The third option they've laid out would be that we would return to the 0.7% target when the economy recovers to its pre-pandemic size, which sort of makes a lot of sense, um, which is expected to be before the start of 2022. But they point out that this would mean we'd be unlikely to see real value for money if that happened, because you'd have a lot of programmes being shut down only to be opened up again a year later. So you're just spending money to replace what was already there. But they said that could be avoided if the government were to announce that this is what it plans to do so that projects and programmes could be paused rather than cancelled. What do you know? Clarity can be helpful sometimes. Right, right. But we've had no indication that that is the plan. Um, and you know, Marion pointed out that there's a real possibility that the government might not go back to 0.7% any time in the near future. Um, this seems to be, have been quite a politically motivated move. With, while the aid pot is, is a really small amount of gross national income and not a huge amount of money compared to other government expenditure... And, you know, for the impact it achieves, not not a huge amount of money. It does sound like a lot of money when you're talking about millions or billions to the general public. Right. And the longer it takes to get back to whatever fiscal situation the government thinks is appropriate, the closer we're going to be to an election. So if the government decides that a 0.7% target isn't popular with the so-called Red wall constituencies or any other areas it's keen to win over,
1: they may decide not to bother. Another thing is that, you know, the next election, in theory, at least, is going to be years and years away. We are only a year and a half or so into this government's term, so There's several to go. Um, it's a bleak picture overall, in my opinion. Um, do you think there is any kind of sliver of hope out there?
0: Yes, maybe, sort of. Um, so the UK is due to host two huge global events this year. The G7 summit in June and COP26, which is the UN climate change conference in November. Right. Yeah. And one of the key arguments for global development and aid spending, aside from any moral argument you might want to make, is that it gives the UK a certain amount of sway or soft power globally. And if we're going to show up at the G7 and say that our priorities are girls' education and open societies, and then try and encourage other countries to focus on these issues as well, it's going to be very tricky to try and lead those discussions when it's so easy to point out that, well, we've cut our own spending in these areas. We're quite literally not putting our money where our mouth is. Mm. Um, You know, that's really going to undermine our legitimacy there. So it is possible that we'll see real consequences during these big global moments like G7 and COP. And maybe that will help to change the government's mind maybe maybe and you know having said that the public is very focused on local causes during the pandemic and local need perhaps as the vaccine rolls out here and that need subsides a little and life starts to go back to normal there will be an increased interest in the situation elsewhere anecdotally you know i think people have been really moved and horrified by the pictures coming out of india so i've I've got family in india i've had a lot of people messaging me going what's going on how can we help What is the situation? Um, And so, you know, it's possible that as we start to kind of get our own house in order, maybe we do start to have that brain space to look out globally. And perhaps helping other people won't play so badly with the electorate as the government seems to be imagining it will at the
1: moment. Maybe. It's so cynical. It makes me very, very sad. But I think, you know, albeit a cynical view, I think that it would perhaps be naïve to believe that anyone would make these decisions again based on what is the right thing to do because if that was the case they wouldn't have made the cuts in the first place. That is absolutely true. So all we can do is is watch and, and wait and I guess in the meantime aid charities are just going to have to advocate and try to get that point across about how urgent and important uh, these you know their work is and um, yeah it's uh it's a, it's a grim picture but maybe there are some things to hang on to there yeah and in the meantime a little bit of clarity would be very very useful you know
0: clarity would be great yeah absolutely shall we now we've brought everybody down that's a real down of an episode Shall we do a coronavirus care package hey let's do it <laughs>
1: Each week, as ever, we bring you our mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. So, Rebecca, we are now going closer to home. Tell us what you have for us this week.
0: This one is a bit of a policy wonky one, um, as much of the episode has been, if we're honest. Um, So uh, we've got a new charities bill announced in the Queen's speech. And hopefully that is some good news. The government has said that the charities bill would address a range of issues in charity law, which currently hamper charities' day-to-day activities. And the plan is this will be implementing the majority of recommendations in the Law Commission's 2017 report on technical issues in charity law. Uh, So that's according to the briefing notes published alongside the speech. So, the Law Commission made 43 recommendations uh, in its 2017 report, which were aimed at removing inappropriate burdens to save charities time and money, which at the moment, and also generally, big fans of. Tell me about some of the burdens. Okay, so the main elements of the Charities Bill, which covers charities in England and Wales, uh, according to the government, will include changing the law to help voluntary sector organisations amend their governing documents more easily with Charity Commission oversight where appropriate. So this, as we've probably said before on the podcast, has been um, a bit of an issue for a lot of charities because many charities governing documents actually had clauses in them which said that trustees had to meet in person. And during the pandemic, obviously video calls were the only ways people could be communicating. So there actually had to be a change in the law to allow them to just do that, which obviously is is much more bureaucracy than anybody needs. Mm. So um, it will also give charities more flexibility to obtain tailored advice when they sell land and remove unnecessary administrative burdens, which again, charity land disputes just suck up so much time and money and energy from everybody. Uh, I've worked on so many of those stories over the years and you end up sort of saying to a a press officer at the Charity Commission press office, are you aware of the 1827 Enclosures Act? (laughs) Because it turns out that's causing these allotments in Farnborough a real problem or something like that. Um, So again, this is a really good move. And uh, the government also said the legislation would increase flexibility for charities on using their permanent endowments. Uh, remove legal barriers for charities merging, give trustees advance assurance that litigation costs in the charity tribunal could be paid from charitable funds as well. So a lot of good stuff there, depending on how it goes. Good news. Good news. Good news. Good news. And we'll look forward to seeing that all uh, unfold, I'm sure, from Third Sector Towers. Yes, indeed. Um, And then we've got another even fluffier one, much fluffier one. Uh, This is a job ad. Everybody Wonderful. everybody loves a good job at it at the moment. Um so uh St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall, which is this
1: incredible um basically castle on island. Fairy tale castle. It's a it is a fairy tale castle. I'm just looking at a picture of it now. It's absolutely stunning.
0: It probably is. It looks like something out of Game of Thrones. It's this kind of fairy tale castle on a rock just off the coast of Cornwall and there is a causeway that you can sort of walk there at low tide but the rest of the time it's cut off Um, and um, they are looking for a new castle officer Uh, and they say the estate wants someone who can stay at the castle at least five nights a week and take a hands-on approach to maintenance duties Um, and you'd get a sea view from every window but unfortunately you wouldn't be able to get pizza delivered to your door um that is the slight problem um but uh, so the island is jointly run by the national trust and the st albin estates uh, and the st albin family live in the castle so partly national trust run um and they say they're looking for someone discreet and compassionate with a tactful demeanor other duties um include a hands-on approach to conservation and checking the public rooms at the end of each day, and just making sure everything's ticking over. Uh, so, Kate Cornwall, head of HR at St Albans Estates, has added: uh, people who suffer from seasickness need not apply. You'll need to love boats, as it's the only way to get on and off the island at high tide. Um, so, yeah, if you think that sounds like the job for you,
1: uh, yeah. Uh, head to the uh, St. Michael, St Michael's Mount website. I'm I'm tempted. I'll be completely honest. I love third sector and I, lo- I love my, you know, I love my role and what I do here, but I could definitely do castle maintenance and ride boats every day. That sounds, frankly, it sounds like a post-pandemic dream. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. I wonder if they would... Uh, take us both on on a job share i mean people again find us hard to distinguish don't they you know yeah we could bring our our very similar uh friendly demeanors (laughs) or whatever it is thereafter down and and um yeah because job sharing obviously is also going to be it's going to be the hot new thing yeah as we know we could probably continue to run the podcast yeah absolutely from
0: you know we could have the noise of seagulls in the background rather than the noise of air conditioning units this this sounds
1: good i think we should do this it sounds perfect all right let's uh let's file an application uh over the weekend brilliant so that's our announcement that's our news uh <laughs> <laughs> that concludes the third sector podcast but keep an eye out for castle uh, podcast coming very very soon to you (laughs) so uh that's all from us uh we'll be back
0: with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it
1: Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. And we will see you next week, whether it's from a castle or the offices, I don't know. But do be sure to tune in.
0: If anybody, any other charities have idyllic historic properties they'd like us to take a look at, we will will consider that. Look us up.